0: Well, before we get too far into things, um, I have the pleasure or perhaps misfortune of introducing a new series for you today. And I find it funny, Uh, you have really wise leadership here at the church, all right, and I know that for a few reasons, but one of the main ones is that Paul only asks me to preach when no one is here. (laughs) So you know you're doing well. No, we are going to be uh, beginning a series talking about Jesus and politics, which I'll have uh, the pleasure of introducing today. Um, before we get there, there's something interesting that I find happens when we enter into sort of that musical worship thing that we do. It's very unusual that Christians get together into a sing song before we hear somebody talk at us for a few minutes. But I find that as we enter into that sort of presence of, of God, we're gathered together as a group, right? Not as individuals, but as, as one entity, one being, one community. And we stand before the face, the, the, the foot, of this guy called Jesus who offers us love, peace, acceptance, challenge. And I find that I come face to face with my own inadequacies, my guilt, right, my shame, the things that I'm not so pleased about in my own walk, in my own faith journey, perhaps you are the same way. So I'd like you to close your eyes for a moment, please. Go ahead and do that now. And I want you to just consider, in a moment of pause and of reflection, where do you stand relative to Jesus? Do you see him far away? Are you on the outside looking in? Maybe you're keeled over, bowing right at his feet. Maybe your back is turned and you can't see him at all. Whatever your posture, I would encourage you to look up and see his face, who smiles at you, reaches a hand on your shoulder, and offers you peace, comfort, and acceptance. By the power of his sacrifice on the cross and his subsequent resurrection from the dead, you have forgiveness in him. Receive that today. You can open your eyes if you want. You can keep them closed too, I wouldn't blame you. Kingdom is kind of an interesting word, it literally means the dome of the king, right? The, the dome of the king, big spherical bubble. Before nation-states, this was not determined by borders or politics or treaties, but by the actual sphere or dome of influence of that particular monarch. How far did a ruler's power reach? As far as they could project that power without contention. So when we say the kingdom of God... This more archaic understanding is really what we have in mind. We do not mean, as some may interpret this term to mean that Jesus or Christianity ought to have a central or necessary place in public policy, i.e., a Christian nation. We don't mean that. We don't mean state religion. We don't mean prayers in Parliament. Rather, we mean something at once more secret and more pronounced. The kingdom of God is that visibly invisible sphere of influence wherein the good news of Jesus is made known and championed among the poor, the marginalized, and the dispossessed. Where the values of upside downness reign supreme. Where to be rich, you gotta be poor. Where to be weak, or sorry, to be strong, you gotta be weak. And to live, you have to die. These values are central to the constitution of heavenly grace, signed and ratified by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The kingdom is not seen, but it is noticed. It's noticed in the hearts of the humble and the hands of the merciful. It's sought by many, but it is found only by the meek, the hurting, and the least. This kingdom is the home of all true Christian patriots, Those patriots who live justly, who love mercy, and who walk humbly with their God. Those who have chosen to live a life governed by the law of grace and the rule of faith. Whose passport is the cross they carry daily, and whose birth certificate their gravestone. The kingdom of God is not a thing, it is not even a people. It is instead a force for good in the world, wrought by the Spirit in and through, firstly, those filled with the life and love of Jesus, and secondly, by those of all walks yearning to see heaven on earth. Jesus is the risen Lord of this new kingdom, the kingdom of God, and that means that his politics and his religion are greater than anything we have created ourselves. Whatever our idea of politics or religion, we must be submitted to Jesus and open to correction as we continue to grow in him and live together. So now that I've done my best to sort of tee up this series, I hope that was okay for all of you, we're going to jump into our passage for today. And there's two stories we'll be looking at that are sort of paired or foils to one another, which we'll see in a little while. Uh, both of these are from the good news a la Luke, which we've been walking through. And first, we'll see out uh, a blind beggar, all right? Guy can't see, asking for money. Then that'll be followed up by Lil' Zach. You've heard the story of Lil' Zach? You all know Lil' Zach, right? Lil' Zacchaeus, right? No? Yeah, now it's familiar. That's a formal name, I promise. Lil' Zach. You can use that, free of charge. We'll conclude... By comparing these two stories, and we're going to see sort of what they might tell us about Jesus' kingdom, his values. And in the end, I hope to show you from the passage how, and this is our big idea today, the kingdom you seek is the kingdom you will see. But one bad joke before we move on. How's that? You see, the ancient Greeks had a really just excellent word for people who cared more about themselves than the people around them. Do you know what that word is? Idiots. That's a true fact. And I think that one of my, and perhaps your, greatest criticisms of the church today would rightly be that it's filled with idiots. Now catch my meaning. Our society is filled with selfish people. And the church tends to be, unfortunately, not very different. And yet, what I think we'll see today and what we'll see throughout this series is that one of the greatest kingdom values that Jesus champions is the loss of self and the propping up of community in faith. So Paul doesn't know this, but the new tagline for this series is, don't be an idiot. It means, you know, Prop up the people around you, live life in community, and don't maybe be so concerned about yourself so much as what yourself can be for others. That sounds an awful lot like something JFK said, doesn't it? Uh Uh-oh. In any case, let's press into our story, shall we? So, as he, this is Jericho, reading from Luke 18, verses 35 to the subsequent story in chapter 19. If you want to follow along, feel free to do so. I'll be reading basically... Right through today. As he, Jesus, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in the front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, Have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought before him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. He, that's Jesus, entered Jericho, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. This is little Zac. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said, "Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today." to save the lost. It's a beautiful story. So to start off here, what do we see? Okay, so Jesus is walking into Jericho or toward Jericho. Notice that just a few chapters ago or a few paragraphs ago, Jesus was in Galilee. Now, Galilee is in the northern part of Judea. This is a little geography lesson. I promise it's going to matter, okay? So bear with me. Galilee is in the north of Judea. Jericho, it's basically smack dab in the center, very far south. This is an incredibly indirect route for Jesus to have taken on his way to Jerusalem. Not only does he have to come really far south and out of the way, a second point is that Jericho is like super low down, all right? It's right beside this thing called the Dead Sea, which is like way below sea level. It's, I think, uh, something like 1.1 meters, sorry, 1.1 kilometers below sea level relative to Jerusalem. So it's quite low, low down. And to get from Jericho to Jerusalem, as Jesus will do in just a few verses time, he's going to head up an incredibly steep path. It's crazy difficult terrain, all right? That is not an easy trip. So we might be asking, why is he in Jericho? Well, there's some special significance to this. First of all, you may be interested to know that Jesus and Joshua, you know this crazy figure from Old Testament times? There's a guy named Joshua. He led a big uh, campaign to take Judea when they were coming out as slaves of Egypt, and his name literally means he saves. Jesus and Joshua, same name, okay? Literally the same name, Yeshua, in some form or another in Hebrew. So there's sort of a parallelism that's being brought here where Jesus is entering by the same route that Joshua took to sort of retake uh, J- Judea and to save his people, okay? There's an, that's an interesting point to note. Uh, again, something that you need to know about J- Jericho in this day and age. You've heard the songs, perhaps. You've seen the Veggie Tales. You're familiar with Jericho, all right? Filled with slushies, all right? Big, empty dirt patch with walls. That's all it is, right? very much not. In this particular time, the guy in charge, a guy named Herod, he had secured Jericho from the Romans. He managed to sort of bid for it and had done a ton of investing in this particular city. So far from being just a dirt patch, this was a state-of-the-art city for its day. It was equipped with all of the best Roman amenities. It had aqueducts, baths, roads, even a hippodrome is a big racetrack, like Ben-Hur style, where you can see chariots running around, all right? Entertainment, it had a tropical climate, guys. Like, this is a resort city. Tons of arable land for farming, walls, basilicas. It was a dream. Far from a dirt patch in the ground. So it might not have been the most populated place. It was wealthy It was privileged, and it was certainly affluent. So now, a blind man is begging by this city. Does that change how you think about that image? This guy is outside the city. Why? Probably because he wasn't allowed in. Can't see. Begging for money. Days before the Passover, probably capitalizing on pilgrim travel, something to that effect, affluent people passing by, offering alms. This is a smart place to beg. And he hears a crowd that's kind of significant, isn't it? He's blind. He <laughs> can't see. So imagine you're sitting there, can't see a thing, and you just hear a stampede of people, right? <laughs> That's surely a beggar's dream, isn't it? Right? Like, oh, come on, right? give, me my, give me my change. He inquires what it's about, right? The crowd. And I should say, the crowd in Luke's gospel is a really interesting character, okay? And I do say character. The crowd in Luke's gospel is, shows up more than any other character apart from Jesus himself and functions in a really interesting way. Sometimes the crowd, you wanna be the crowd because they're following Jesus, they're giving him praise, right? It's a good time. Other times the crowd is not so great. I want you to pay attention in this story and see if you can figure out which the crowd is in this particular story. So the crowd, they, the crowd says to Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And immediately this guy, he's like, he springs into action, he starts shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So pay attention to what the beggar does once he understands who's passing him, right? He cries out, and this title might surprise you, okay? What on earth does this mean? Jesus, son of David, what's going on here? David was a guy from the Old Testament again, all right? This is a theme that keeps coming up. Old stuff tends to matter when we're talking about Jesus, unfortunately. (laughs) David was a king. He was perhaps the first true king, you could say, Um, I'm, of course, talking about uh, the shepherd-turned-warrior-turned-king-turned-warlord-turned-adulterer-turned-murderer-turned-negligent-father. That, David. You guys know the one. So, Son of David is a royal title, but it's more than that. There was a weird thing that happened in the Old Testament where a prophet shows up to David and, speaking on behalf of God, promises that one of his kids will reign forever on a throne in Jerusalem. It's very surprising, it's very out of nowhere. Sometimes scholars call it the covenant out of nowhere, which I think is a funny title. It's this promise made to David that one of his descendants would reign forever. So this title son of David is not just royal, it's messianic, okay? It's referring to this promised person that would come and reign. And there's something that's going to happen as I said, when Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem, he's ascending from the very lowest point in Jerusalem to the very highest peak. You can hopefully appreciate that symbolism. As he's approaching the city, that triumphal entry where he hops on a donkey and waddles into Jerusalem, right? It doesn't seem very royal, does it? Except it's precisely what Solomon, David's son, did when he was inaugurated as king in Jerusalem. The royal imagery is very pronounced, okay? So son of David, it's a call of kingship. It's a call of messiahship. It's also a statement of belief. This guy knew who Jesus was, Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, that Jesus? And immediately the blind guy gets up and starts, I mean, dropping elbows to get to the front. Right? You think I'm overselling that? I mean, seriously, he's crying out, right? And the crowd says, what do they say? Be quiet, <laughs> right? Stop, the guys in front are like, dude, right? I want you to imagine, right? You're downtown calling what a Christmas. Oh, it's beautiful. The lights are there. You got the big old tree. And there's a guy just sitting at the end, begging because of all the traffic, right? All these people coming, doing their Christmas shopping, right? Give me change, give me change, give me change, please. And then he hears something going on. He's like, well, what's going on? He asks somebody standing by. There's a whole crowd here. They say, oh, the Santa Claus parade's coming by. He goes, Santa? And he marches out into the middle of the procession, stops the whole parade. (laughs) And Santa, what does Santa do? In this case, Jesus says, chill, bring him to me. You can hopefully appreciate how absurd this is, right? This guy's making a scene. You don't want some homeless guy running out in the middle of the Santa Claus parade, do you? But well, that's precisely what Jesus embraces. This guy walks out and Jesus asks him, he gives give him a question. Did you catch the question? He says, what do you want me to do for you? I love that question. He gives the guy a chance to state his intent, okay? And what does he reply? He says, Oh, hold on. Lord, let me recover my sight. Does that seem obvious to you? Hold on. It might be so obvious. Maybe you've been so familiarized with these things that you missed what happened there. Okay? The beggar didn't ask for money. Did you catch that? The guy who's begging outside of an affluent city capitalizing on pilgrim traffic didn't ask a de facto celebrity for cash. Does that surprise you? Because it kind of should. Imagine the belief he must have already had. What might. See. Command, imperative mood. See. I love that. Your faith has saved you restored you, or made you whole. It means that all at once, okay? Or made you well is, is fine. Your faith has saved you, restored you, or made you whole. The beggar sought Jesus in earnest in order to be made whole, and in this case, Jesus certainly did restore his sight. He commanded him to see, but the beggar went on following Jesus, giving glory to God, and inspiring others to do the same. This indicates that more than just physical healing went on here. There's an internal overflowing of joy and gladness as the man receives from Jesus this saving. Now, the second story. Little Zach. Jesus enters Jericho. He's passing through. And behold, there's this man named Zacchaeus, chief tax collector. Keep in mind, this guy's rich by Jericho's standards. Hopefully that helps you understand just how affluent this guy is. And he can't see. Right, He's too small. So what does he do? Climbs a tree. Imagine you're at the Santa Claus parade. And there's a little guy who just can't see over the crowd. And up the tree he goes. Can you imagine that? Come on, that's absurdly funny. And Jesus... is hey Zach want to come down (laughs) interestingly Jesus calls him by name now perhaps Zacchaeus was affluent enough that he had a reputation Jesus grew up in Galilee he would have known the 10 towns possibly had some understanding of Jericho he could have been a something of a celebrity that might be true it might also be true that this is one of these moments of sort of uh, divine reason where Jesus simply knows a fact about someone he's never met. Either way, Jesus calls him by name. And he kind of invites himself over, which might throw you off. Like, hey, I'm coming to your house, right? And you go, that's a little, I'm, you know, it's a little bracing, isn't it? Except, imagine, instead, that uh, Taylor Swift was coming to town. She's like, yo, staying so you know, at your house. Now are you cool or what? right? That's what's going on here. This is a celebrity personality walking into an affluent city, and he picks this guy to honor with his presence, okay? Like, there's, a, there's mad social taboo going on here. This guy is a tax collector. This is the thief. This is the dude who robs the rich people, right? Probably exploits the poor, right? He might be the guy who kicked out the old blind beggar. We don't know, but it might be in character, In any case, Zacchaeus brings him in, receives him gladly, it says, and there's sort of a flash forward of action where he gets brought in, crowd goes, and then Jesus uh, and he are seated. We know this because Zacchaeus stands. And he says, Behold, Lord, I'm going to give half my stuff away to the poor, and if I've wronged anybody, I'm going to make it right. And what does Jesus say? He says, well, what does he say? He says, uh, "Not, not. I want to get it right. I want to quote him. Um, Behold, or something to that effect. Come on. Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Okay. Now, notice what Jesus does. He's claiming that salvation has come because of this act that Zacchaeus is proclaiming to do, and he corrects the crowd's mistake. The crowd says he's a sinner, and Jesus says." He's a son of Abraham. Oh, that gives me chills. It might not give you chills. It gives me chills. So these two stories, okay, they are foils one to the other. They, you can compare them and sort of see some things. So let's, let's do that now. You have a poor man who can't see, search to find Jesus, and have his sight restored, restored. You have a rich man who cannot see because he's short. He climbs a tree to witness Jesus and is met and embraced by him. The poor man goes about singing praises to god inspiring others to do the same in effect giving all that he has the rich man gives away in his abundance to the poor and he seeks to restore his wrongs fourfold both of them demonstrate an external manifestation of whatever internal uh, salvation has come to them the poor man is rebuked by the crowd for being too excited to see jesus and the rich man makes the crowd grumble because he's a sinner so is the crowd good or bad here Jesus welcomes the poor man despite the crowd, and he honors the rich man despite the crowd. And the faith of the poor man saves him. The generosity of the rich man saves his entire household. And Jesus corrects his identity. Both were outcasts on either end of the social ladder. Both find welcome and embrace in Jesus. Both were unable to see one way or another, but in reality, and this is the beauty of it, the irony, did you get the twist at the very end? Jesus was already seeking them. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Who are the lost? Those who are on the outside. The poor, the marginalized, and the dispossessed. Yes, even the rich. Believing hard enough didn't restore the beggar's eyes, nor did writing a fat check buy passage into heaven. Rather, Both are external manifestations of the kingdom they sought. The beggar sought salvation in the person of Jesus, and it was granted. The rich man sought to see who and what this Jesus guy was all about, and after one encounter with him, committed to divesting his wealth and redressing his wrongdoing. Why? (laughs) Because Jesus was already seeking them. Both sought wealth one way or another, and likely for different reasons. But when given the opportunity to come face to face with Jesus and all that he stood for, we see them transformed into those willing to make fools of themselves in order to glorify God. So in both of these stories, I think that you can see that like Zacchaeus didn't just part with his stuff as a showboating tactic, okay? Like he didn't just go like, oh guys, look at me, right? And Jesus, frankly, wouldn't buy into that if he did. Right? Jesus isn't going to say, oh yeah, no, great, thanks for your check, thanks for donating to the cause, uh, you're good, man. That's how Jesus talked, by the way. <laughs> so of course, that's not what's happening. What instead, I think we see, is a man so eager, right, so longing to see something more than what he's got, despite all of this wealth, climb a tree to get a glimpse of this guy, only to then, after an encounter, give everything away. You see a blind man who's begging for change, drop elbows through a crowd just to get an audience with this dude, right? This is far from just like an idle happenstance. This is this external representation of the kingdom they were already longing for. And the beauty of it is that in both stories, their sight, so to speak, is restored. Both physically, in the case of the blind man, but also the alignment shift in Zacchaeus, where he's like, i got to help the poor with all this wealth, and man, have I stolen some stuff. (laughs) In a similar effect, in our day and age, I think you'll find that the kingdom that you seek is the one you'll see. Put another way, you're going to notice what you're expecting to notice. If all you're chasing after is the wealth of this particular plane right, bigger houses, faster boats. I doubt that you're going to be all that satisfied, specifically meaning that you might find those things, you might see those things, or you might just be incredibly disappointed. But when we instead align our values with that kingdom that Jesus champions, where the outside, the outcast, the poor, the dispossessed, the marginalized, you know, the weak, the lame, the the lepers... Right, the unclean ones, those are the people who Jesus pays attention to. Those are the people who get propped up. Right? Those are the ones that we see so often in Scripture, receiving that fullness and gladness of joy that comes with that encounter with Jesus. And the same is still true for us, really. Our values tend to be aligned to the culture we're a part of. And today our challenge, and really every day our challenge is to remember just how different Jesus' kingdom is. That it shines itself in our weakest moments, not our strongest ones. And hopefully as we chase those values, as we seek that kingdom, you'll begin to notice it and see it, even in your simplest and maybe darkest day. Cool? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you are and all that you do each day. We thank you that you've created this space here for us, a little group of your followers that you welcome despite our iniquity, our issues. And you Welcome us just as you did a beggar and a rich man. So, no matter our station, we lay ourselves before you, God, and we ask that you would help open our eyes and restore our sight that we too might have that alignment shift that helps us see the kingdom in our everyday. Be with each one, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. would you all stand for me? I'm going to send us off here. I always like to close with a word of benediction. Because it's kind of fun. A little weird. It's like super awkward. I'm going to get you to move your hands and stuff. But just keep in mind, we do have coffee at the back. We'd love for you to stay and linger. We know it's a long weekend, so if you have to go, that's totally cool. But I'd encourage you to just chill, hang out. Uh, the coffee's pretty good, so have some. I'm going to bless you. If you would, put your hands forward like this. And it's a way of physically sort of showing the receiving of heavenly blessing. And I'm going to stretch mine out. There's nothing magic about this. It's totally awkward. I get it. But center yourselves and we'll hear this. May the peace of the Lord Christ be with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again to our doors. Go in peace.